This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 17 of Music is Not a Genre, MXG. I don't have those hand gestures down. I I just don't have time to deal with that. If someone is an expert out there on hand gestures, slide into my DMs or something. Let me know, because I really need to choreograph that. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Don't forget, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre or at anchor.fm slash music is not a genre. The public hub is youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. My website is nickdomadio.com. And the most important of all is uh, please listen to and support my band, Wreck and the Drop, actually, at wreckarea.bandcamp.com. For you newbies out there, Wreck is spelled R-E-C. So wreckarea.bandcamp.com, where you will find... A relatively new album, which you will see to my right here, which I guess is your left, huh? And uh, and if you're not, uh, if you're only listening and you're not watching, it is a shot of my CD cover, of which I have not actually made CDs, but it's the cover of the album It Wasn't Me, which is cover songs, movie music, and weird unreleased singles by The Drop, by Wreck, by some other bands that I have collaborated with. Uh, please go to recary.bandcamp.com, check that out, or you can check it out on any major streaming service. Let's get to this week's topic. Uh, I dressed up special for it because it's a pretty big one, and uh, I'm pretty nervous. This is uh, another in a series of my sub-series Music is Everything because it is not dealing with one specific kind of music, and it's not dealing with one specific artist or release or anything like that. Uh, and you know, it expounds some ideas. Uh, I will be connecting it in some way. I don't know how yet. I have notes here. We're going to, you know, a lot of this is, uh, preparation and then just kind of let it fly. And the topic this week is the hundred year decade slam every genre's peak era. So to break that down in the last hundred years ish, more like starting in the 1930s, but good enough. Uh, every decade, to me, had music that rose to the top. And I'm going to give you a lot of parameters, criteria, disclaimers, and stuff like that. But the basic idea here is I'm going to go through a bunch of genres, almost, I would say it's about 30. I, I didn't count them fully. And give you what I deem to be the decade in which those genres were were at their peak. And this is, again, with as with all my music, because it's where I grew up, so if you're listening abroad, this is from a Western music perspective, and it's also from a United States perspective. I try you know, my best to include music from other countries, uh, but in particular, this would be, you know, as, as is the case in, you know, much of what I do has to do with this country. 
Um, this doesn't mean that I'm saying for any of these genres that it was the only time this music was good. Absolutely not. In fact, there may be decades when this music was more successful commercially, you know, or more artistically adventurous or, you know, hit the culture more in certain ways. And I mention those three things because that's how I am judging this. I'm judging it based on what I call the three C's, which is creativity. So how much uh, artists were able to kind of explore that genre and in some ways define the or redefine the genre and, and codify it in more ways. It's another C word. A charm, which means... Uh, how did it hit the culture? Did it did it uh, affect or was it part of the zeitgeist in any way? Did it did it infiltrate itself into the culture in significant ways? Was it appealing to masses of people? Did people love it uh, more so than in other decades? Let's say. And then the last one is commerce. Uh, how much money did it make? How how did it sell? Where was it on the charts? Uh, and, and all of those things like that. Now with each of those three things, again, there might be a decade where the this music was more popular or again more creative or sold more so i'm taking kind of the aggregate of those three and and judging that and remember everything i say it's absolutely you know 100% the only truth uh so or is it just opinion yeah it, it, i'm i'm giving you educated opinion laced with facts here based on my fairly extensive knowledge of lots of different kinds of music and some of the research that I've done as to why, and and I will make a case for each genre here as to why I think that decade, that's when that genre was kind of at its peak, you know. Uh, I'm not making any specific uh, distinctions on race or gender or sexuality because everyone has done everything, every type of person has done every type of music and that's as it should be uh and i will say this and i'm going to say this up front because it, I, i'll probably repeat it you know but in case i forget it seems to me like in many of these cases in in well and i think in every case there's never it was never the first decade of a genre that was that was the greatest it was often the second sometimes the third uh, and that, I think, holds true with every single one of these genres, uh, except the first one, um, which I'm doing this by decade. I thought that was a pretty good way to, you know, um, to to structure it. I could have gone alphabetical, but I, I just I feel like if I'm doing decades, if I'm doing 100 years, this is the way to do it. So I think we should just jump right in. Starting in the 1930s, and I'm biting off a lot here right in the beginning, uh, I believe that for, for the last hundred years, you know, or so, the 1930s was when classical music was at its peak. And, you know, I'm obviously not saying that it was the best decade era f- uh, ever for classical music, because if anybody who studied the, the form knows, first of all, there's many different kinds of classical music. You're lumping things together. And again, music is not a genre. So who knows how people, you know, define classical music. Uh, there are times in history when music we think of as classical was not considered classical then. It was just considered popular, you know. 
But I'm I've always been a big fan of uh, you know Chopin and Debussy and, and people like you know that several other people, Bach. So yeah, I'm not saying that the best ever classical music was made in the 30s, but I think as far as the last hundred years, you had people, and this this is a very common thing among everything that I end up going through, which is that a lot of the decades I choose are crossover decades where you had elements of what strong elements of what had come before meshed with things that were up and coming that would would dominate and define the genre in years after that. And so it was a really vibrant period where you were mixing old school with, you know, future school with new school with, you know, all of that together. And I think a great way to illustrate this for the classical is you had these artists, Aaron Copeland, Bella Bartok, Arnold Schoenberg, Igor Stravinsky, Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, Prokofiev, Gershwin, John Cage, Ray Fon Williams, Benjamin Britten, Maurice Ravel, Edgar Varese. Uh, I'm going to throw a shout out to Zoltan Kodai because it's Hungarian and I performed in a mass of his once and uh, you know he was uh, very active. And when you listen to that list, you're getting people who are doing, you know, 12 tone and and odd odd harmonics you're getting people who are doing more traditional things people who still kind of have that air of like uh post impressionism expressionism and and all of that hey, all of this is technically considered the modernist era but that's such a broad statement it had it had elements of romanticism and and it had precursors anyway of postmodernism when you throw somebody like john cage in there of course you're going to get a little bit of that and and that's my take classical and as i say this i want you to keep in mind in fact okay pause ready and pause the video okay we're back and the re- actually i told you to pause the video i didn't tell you what to do so let's do it again I want you to go and get a pen and paper or your phone uh, notes, however it is you take notes, because I want to know your opinions on all of this stuff. And it's going to be a lot. Like I said, 10 different decades and maybe 30 different uh, genres. So go get a pen and paper. Go get whatever it is you like to take notes on and pause. Okay, we're back again. That was fun. Uh, So second now, that's the only one for the 1930s that I think really, you know, was dominant in that decade. Obviously, many other things existed in that decade. I don't think those things were at the creative peak, except that I'm going to give a shout out to the blues there because so many significant things happened in the 1930s for the blues. But we'll get to the blues a little bit later, as far as I'm concerned, which brings us to the 1940s. And again, only one uh, genre in this decade and that to me is swing. I mean, it's, it, you know, the swing era. And to me, it was the, it was the peak of the swing era. The uh, swing music has probably made way more money since then. It probably even made more money in the 50s, frankly. But as far as its impact on the culture, you know, dance and, and fashion and just the, the, all of the stars, let's in fact just name some. You had the Dorsey brothers, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, Artie Shaw, one of my favorites because clarinet, Glenn Miller, Harry James, Bing Crosby, Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, the Andrews sisters, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald even. You know, what a mix right there. And again, a lot of people who have been around a while and who were extremely successful then, people who have become even more successful in later years like Ella, like Frank Sinatra. And even though I personally prefer 1950s swing because it was a little cooler, it kind of 
knew what it was. It wasn't trying so hard. It hadn't peaked yet. It hadn't gotten self-referential. It was more expansive. It was even more personal. Uh, I will be doing uh, another episode probably this season, late in this season, on uh, Frank Sinatra and crooners and talk about how the Nelson Riddle years, Frank Sinatra in the 50s, were my favorite. And I'll you know go into that more in that episode. Even though I think my personal opinion is the 50s had, you know, were more akin to what I like for swing. It's the 40s to me that when swing was really at the peak. Uh, But again, shout out to the 30s, you know, when it really took hold. Uh, And also shout out to the 1990s when it had a resurgence, you know, as a lot of things did and, and do and have done in various decades but I, I'm kind of. It was important for me to point out that, in many cases here, and I've already mentioned two, my personal favorites do not necessarily coincide with what I've chosen here. Uh, I'm, you know, it's not that I'm being objective. It's impossible to be completely objective, but it's, it's just to say I've thought about more than just oh I happen to like that. You know, which brings us to the 1950s, and you've got a couple of uh, a couple of good ones here. And the first one, uh, jumping off a swing, is jazz. Uh, Quick shout out, though, to, I mean, so many decades, but the 1970s in particular, I feel as though everything that has happened in jazz uh, is is an offshoot of things that happened from the 1970s prior. But the 70s still had a lot of innovation with jazz fusion and smooth jazz and so many other things like that that I just need to give a quick shout out there. Now, I will say in this case, contradict myself, that that the 50s jazz is my favorite jazz. It had that cool jazz feel. Uh, again, it was another pivot decade. You had older, you know, older stars, established stars, I'll say, like Duke Ellington and Ella Fitzgerald. But then you had new cats like Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, Dave Brubeck, Chet Baker, you know, crossing over with styles like bossa nova and free jazz. You had, uh, you know, bebop morphing into hard bop. So it was just, it was so vibrant. And even though there were, you know, you could say likely that, you know, jazz was more central to the culture in the in the 40s, uh, I think that the, the 50s was when it had not quite every element that it would eventually have, but so many of the elements that are what make jazz uh, amazing. It was branching off even from its blues origins and things like that. It was a real sweet spot for for jazz when the rhythm of older jazz meshed with the looser experimentalism of jazz to come. Uh, And then the second genre for the 50s to me, actually there are three. I I, I didn't uh, bold the third one, jeepers. Um, That's my swear word, jeepers, like it. Blues, the blues, been around certainly much longer than that, you know, branched off of folk music and and all that and, and, um, you know, spirituals and things. Uh, To me, the 50s, again, was another crossover decade when a lot of the older uh, pioneers like Howlin' Wolf uh, and then artists who were popular at the time, like Muddy Waters, Etta James, were mixing up with the up-and-comers like B.B. King, Buddy Guy, and, and... you had acoustic blues, you had electric blues, you had rhythm and blues, you had blues that was morphing into rock and roll. Blues was influencing, you know, a blues that was jazz. Blues was influencing or had influenced by this point so many types of music. And, you know, 
I will say for a lot of these genres, maybe all of them, hey, you know, I'm no expert. I don't know everything about everything for any specific genre. But I've studied enough and listened enough and know enough to, to you know, give this kind of educated opinion. And the blues to me in the 1950s, yes, would there be more blues after that? Yeah, to this day. I, you know, and, and like we said, we talked about the history too. But that was really, a, I think, the peak decade for me. This one's a hard one. Uh, it's the... To me, the first of maybe two very hard ones. Some of these are hard-ish, but this very hard one, and that is musical theater. Now, I've performed musical theater. I've seen musical theater. I have been a casual fan of musical theater. I don't know uh, as much about it as so many other people. Uh, musical theater, you know, stemming out of kind of the Gilbert and Sullivan-y things and all the things that came before it. And you've certainly had, you certainly had classics musical theater prior to the 50s, but there was just such a rich, you know, think of, I mean, West Side Story and Sound of Music and so many others that I've just completely, you know, that flown out of my head. But those of you who know musicals better can name probably 20 of them. And even though musicals to this day are super popular and vibrant and have been to some degree in every decade. I feel like the crossover of, again, culture and creativity and melding the past with what was to come really, really was bubbling up the most in the 1950s. And I think even not to say that musicals haven't been relevant since then. And in fact, I think there's been sort of a renaissance of musical relevance in the last, uh, maybe, you know, 25, 30 years when you think of things like Rent and uh, even like, you know, Dear Heaven Hansen and musicals like that. There's always been that sense of relevance. But I think the relevance crossing over with the greater culture, that you really can't beat the 50s uh, for musicals. And these also influence so many future musicals. What we think of as a musical today was really codified in the in the 40s and 50s you know you had and i think in the 50s in particular because musical comedy and drama like everything was so well developed by then and musicals hadn't quite come you know yet become self-referential you're going to hear me use that word a few more times because to me once a genre ages past a certain point you start looking back on that genre and seeing what you like about it to pick from it and kind of, uh, you know, modernize something in a retro way, if that makes any sense. You're looking back to look forward. There's something self-referential about that. Or reactive, which is to say, like, again, every genre, whether you think of the way punk was reactive to Prague, and we'll get to those later, you know, but even within one specific genre where, musical theater started to lean more towards rock operas and things like that. It was reacting against the traditional forms. So that none of that quite was happening yet. So that's another reason why I say the fifties, which brings us to the 1960s. And there's uh, only a couple here, you know, it's one of my favorite eras. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I'd say it is my favorite favorite, but it's definitely one of my favorites. And every kind of music that existed at the time was amazing in this decade, as as I would say, even in the 1970s. But I've only chosen two, and they're going to be one of them. This one here is going to be very uh, controversial, and that is rock, rock, rock and roll, 
hard rock, however you want to name it. I'm not going to break it down into sub-sub genres. There, there are a couple of sub genres I'm going to get to later on, like progressive rock and, you know, indie and stuff, because they became such a big thing on their own. But I'm not going to go into, you know, uh, orchestral rock or well, all the various types of rock, Brit rock, just in general, the breadth and the, the totality of rock music to me, you can't beat the 60s for the type of exploration, the type of uh, pop culture uh, impact and popularity and, and all of that. Just my three C's, if you think about them, uh, creativity, charm and commerce really all came together in the 60s. We know that rock and roll existed before then. We, you know, if you followed me, you know that I say that it had its precursors in the 40s even. And there are decades in which it probably made even more money and was even more dominant than the 1960s. I'd say the 70s probably qualifies there. But uh, the 70s couldn't have happened without what happened in the 60s. And that's a simple thing to say about really everything, right? But... It, what I mean by that is, again, the 70s had very, you know, reactive types of rock music, uh, anti-rock even, almost with like soft rock or, you know, punk and even progressive rock was itself a uh, response. But I believe all of those forms had their origin or precursors in the 1960s anyway. In fact, I'd venture to say that every single type of rock even to some degree, electro rock had its precursor in the 1960s. You're not going to find a lot of that in the 50s. And by the 70s, uh, what rock was had been pretty well codified, uh, expanded and codified. And I know that keeps changing, but that's that's my take. I'd love to know uh, if you disagree. Again, I'm not even sure that as far as rock goes, the 60s are my favorite decade. There's so many favorite bands from that era. But, you know, I have to give a shout out to the 1990s because I was sort of, you know, the 80s were amazing for me as far as music, but I was reawakened to current rock in the 90s and have kind of never looked back, and especially 90s and 2000s. And so they may be more my favorite for personal reasons, whatever, style and all of that stuff and the type of music I do. But I again, I have to give it to the 60s. And the other genre here in this decade, folk. Uh, folk comes out of traditional music. And I'm speaking specifically of folk music like acoustic, you know, story songs or political songs, not the broader definition of folk music, meaning music created by folks, you know, so you could have African folk music and Irish folk music and, and, you know, uh, Brazilian folk music, whatever that some of that I'm going to get to later in a certain way, but I mean like the traditional American idea of folk music, Woody Guthrie, you know, even Bob Dylan. And I'm going to give a quick shout out to the 1990s. Cause to me, there was sort of a Renaissance from the, mid late eighties on through the nineties of folk music in particular among women who just blew, blew the scene apart in so many amazing ways. But getting back to the sixties, you know, the type of thing we think of as folk music took shape uh, quite a bit in the 19th century 
And then in the mid 20th century, it all of a sudden had this big revival and Alan Lomax played a big part of that. And the, you know, all the studies he did, the field recordings he did of folk music and just people wanting to kind of get more back to basics and, uh, which happens so often, people talking about getting back to basics in so many ways. And then you had people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger still, well, not Woody Guthrie, but, you know, but, you know those are the big, you would think of at least two of them as far as, um, and then Arlo Guthrie will come along too, you know, folk music. Then, of course, Dylan, you know, and he was folk, but he was also folk rock. And that's what, to me, makes the one of the reasons the 60s were the peak of folk was because folk hadn't fully become what we know it to be now, which is it didn't need to adhere so strictly to somebody sitting in a field playing an acoustic guitar. There are so many different ways you can you can create music that is still folk music or largely folk music, if you want to say it that way. And that whole controversy with Dylan going electric and blah, blah, blah was just growing pains, right? So, so many artists since then have done music that is folk music, that has that in, eventually would become like singer-songwriter music, like the 70s and, you know, James Taylor and uh, Jim Croce and people like that and Harry Chapin. But the 60s, it's when it also was such an important part of the culture that it influenced so many other kinds of music. You had bands like the Birds and the Beatles who were really into folk music to the point where maybe the mamas and the papas to the point where they incorporated into what they were doing in ways that didn't happen nearly as much in decades to come, you know, which brings me to the 1970s and hang in here, people, you know, if you have a favorite decade and I haven't gotten to it yet, you're welcome to scroll through and find it, but I'm not going to give you any visual cues because I'd love to have you along for this entire ride. I'm not even sure I'm halfway done. So it's going to be kind of a, a, a big one. We're at the 1970s, which has the most genres on my list. Six, for those of you scoring at home. And uh, yeah, it's an old David Letterman reference. Um, the first one I'm going to go into is country. Now, I've said this before. I'm not the biggest country fan in the world. I have things that I do enjoy, but I I don't know it as well as some other genres. We do know that country saw a giant surge in popularity in the 80s and 90s. To me, that's when the full commercial, uh, you know, potential of country was realized and it never looked back. And since then, it's been extremely commercially successful, one of the tops, right? But I would say, again, the 70s, another crossover decade, you had older artists like, uh, you know, Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard. You had artists who were coming into their own in that decade, like Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton. And then you have people like Kenny Rogers, uh, you know, looking forward. And so many of the 80s stars were influenced by those people. And it hadn't quite gotten to the point where what we thought of as country was just sort of a soft pop rock or just a kind of that slick sound that was a little too rigidified in, in decades to come. And then it would explode again. And, you know, you'd have like Americana and, and, and alt country and all the other things that would come from it. But to me, much of what country was and would become 
was established in the 1970s. It had a big, when you think of songs like uh, Take This Job and Shove It and Convoy and uh, all the, you know, even a lot of the stuff that, um, uh, what's his name? The guy who died in the plane crash did. Um, Thank God I'm a Country Boy and all of that. You, you can see how there was a variety of types of country music in, in a, that even influenced pop stars like Olivia Newton-John and Linda Ronstadt. And then anybody who has ever seen the intro to the old variety show, uh, Donnie and Marie, singing I'm a little bit country, I'm a little bit rock and roll, you weren't going to see that in the decade before. And you didn't really see that in the decade after. You know, Not to mention, you had a giant explosion of country rock you know, like Leonard Skinner and and Alabama and uh, the Almond Brothers and all of that stuff, and even to some degree the Eagles. You know, just that again. And and yes, I will say this is another like jazz where this is my favorite decade for country music. I've heard things since then that I've kind of liked, but since it's not a, a big on my list of favorites as far as the type of music. Uh, I don't have a lot to choose from and I, you know, respect everything that a lot of these people have done, but it's the seventies where it really hit my sweet spot, which uh, gets to the next genre, which is easy listening. So this is not just soft rock. Yes. It's, it's, you know, yacht rock. Easy listening music has been around for, yeah, sure. I'm sure forever, but especially uh, a big check shout out to the 1950s when you had people like Montavani and Esquivel and, kind of that light jazz swing sound or Percy Faith and, and, you know, really like stuff to put on when you're, you know, having a dinner party type thing. But as far as infiltrating so many other genres of music, whether it was R&B and soul or pop or rock, easy listening to me was at its peak in the 1970s. But I also need to give a, che- a, a shout out and a check to right now, from the 2010s on to now, because of the episode I did a few weeks ago that was talking about uh, soft rock and how so many artists, their paradigm is very soft right now. So there's, a, there's been kind of that resurgence. And some of that comes from the electronic side. Com- some of that comes from the singer-songwriter side. And some of it comes from that kind of soft rock, kind of the 70s side. But a lot of that was just, that was established in the 1970s. And a lot of people, when they think of the 1970s, or if you say soft rock, that's where they're going to go, is that decade. Reggae uh, is number what? This is the third one out of six. Uh, Reggae, I was delighted to learn many years ago that reggae was actually an offshoot of ska that ska came first and then rock steady which just basically meant it was getting slower and slower ska rock steady reggae right and this is not something i know a ton about i'm going to have to give a shout out to you know reggaeton and and the way that it has influenced so many different kinds of music in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. But as far as what we think of as reggae, you had people like Bob Marley, Jimmy Cliff, Toots and the Maytals. Uh, You had older stars like Eric Clapton picking it up. You had newer stars like the Rush of the second second British Invasion stars like UB40 and so many other, uh, even uh, Madness, who would do 
mostly ska rock steady, but would do some reggae too, especially you'd be 40. Uh, you know, reggae is island soul to me. So even though reggaeton has probably made way more money than reggae ever did, and it's probably had more influence and have more stars to me, that's like the, 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 the difference between soul and disco is the difference between reggae and reggaeton. Right. So if you're just about strict reggae, you know, with that loping rhythm, uh, you got to give it to the 70s, you know. Uh, and like I said, ska was first. Ska has been around since I think the 50s. It would become way bigger in the 80s and 90s, you know, and you had like Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and like I said, all those British bands and, and you know, like ska, metal, ska rock, whatever. Is it what, 311 maybe? I don't know. But it, you know, it's just interesting that there was that kind of leapfrog of, of, oh, ska, oh, no, reggae, oh, ska, oh, no, reggaeton, you know, like it just keeps switching back and forth. And then number four, big one, R&B and soul, like with most of these genres, I would guess all, every single decade has great stuff. And this one probably even maybe more than others. But, it, you know, there are just too many stars, too many influential stars and people who created the language of R&B and soul in the 1970s. Uh, there's really, I'm not even going to list them. You can talk about, you know, the Stevie Wonder and all of the people who did what they did in the 1970s who allowed soul to become more than just pop music. It became its own thing. It had its own uh, language and its own set of it could sing about anything and has since then done that. And when you think of the neo soul of the nineties and the artistry of D'Angelo and Erica Badu and people like that, and Jill Scott, there's no way any of that would have existed without the soul of the 1970s. You know, even, even quite a bit of what, you know, um, the softer stuff that, uh, uh, you know, Lenny Kravitz has done and, and yes, soul music existed before then you know, uh, 60s and even tiny precursors in the 50s and would exist after that. But it hadn't quite gotten as tinny and compressed as it would in the 1980s. It didn't become as self-referential as it would in the 1990s and beyond. Uh, it, It wasn't quite, it was, yes, of course, artists strive for the pop charts, but it was allowing itself and the artists were allowing themselves to explore in ways that, yes, would happen again, like those artists I mentioned in the 1990s, but never happened quite as much as it did in the 1970s. Even Smokey Robinson, who was a powerhouse in the 60s, would become this amazing soul singer, soul pop singer, you know, basically invented Quiet Storm, uh, things like that. Which brings me to, you know, related, funk. And you can't take away from James Brown, who who pretty you know pretty much almost single handedly invented the genre, and he was equally influential in the in the decade of the 1970s. But when you name artists like Sly, The Family Stone, Parliament Funkadelic, Ohio Players, Isleys, who have been around since the 50s, but had this incredible resurgence in the 70s that helped to define and redefine what funk was and is earth wind and fire stevie wonder did quite a bit of funk curtis mayfield with superfly isaac hayes with shaft cool and the gang sos band daz band gap band into disco which to me is just dance funk 
you know, it gets a, it gets, it, it has gotten a bad rap and, you know, people will get kind of retro about it and say, oh, isn't this fun, you know, light music, but people forget the cultural influence that disco had with people of color and, and LGBTQ people and all of that. You can't, I think, even though lots of different kinds of funk would happen after the 70s, most, if not all of what we know of today as funk was, was born by the 1970s, including Prince, who of course did way more than funk. He's not in any one of these categories because he's the favorite kind of artist. Can't be, right? But started in the 1970s. Um, Prague, progressive rock. Oh, man, right? So progressive rock existed in the 1960s, but not to nearly the degree that it did in the 1970s. And yes, I will again say that this is my favorite decade for this genre, mainly because of Yes, but also bands like Genesis, you know. And it's when it became what we think of Prague as. And yet at the same time, it was still finding ways to be more universally appealing. I mean, Yes had hits, you know, like Genesis had hits and those hits were a little more pop. Journey, who was progressive then, Chicago, they had hits And some of those hits had very progressive elements. Now, going off of Kelefasana's book, I think that's where I read it. Um, It might have been the other book, uh, the, The Show That Never Ends. Progressiveness in music never looked back in two ways. One, progressive rock is still exists. And there are bands that are kind of multi-genre or genre mixing like Tool or, or whatever, who have taken progressive rock into new directions and all of that. And yet, if you listen to it, you can still hear the origins really in the 1970s. It, it became what it was always meant to be in that decade. And the second reason, uh, you know, uh, Prague is here to stay is because it has influenced every single other kind of music. And it started to do that in the 70s when you had bands who were doing pop and regular rock and even electronic music. Disco itself and dance and electronic music were heavily influenced by progressive music. When you think of a dance song, how many genres can you name where a hit can be over four or five minutes max? You can say progressive rock and you can say all the various forms of dance music. And others, too, but specifically those. Pink Floyd, another one that popped into my head. And when you think of interesting chord changes or uh, little elements added in that you think maybe don't belong or changes in rhythm in any way, uh, tempo, uh, like let's say Franz Ferdinand's song, uh, Take Me Out, slows down in the middle of it, changes to a different tempo. And just all all of this comes from... Prague telling us, oh, you're allowed to do that. And this is how you do it. And that ends that massive decade, which brings me to the 1980s. Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. 
It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I'm going to say that punk and post-punk were at their peak in the 1980s. There's a lot of 70s punk that I do enjoy, and of course it's when it started, even though you can hear precursors in the 60s. You absolutely can. So it's the name, and I said this a couple seasons ago, just because somebody names a genre in a decade doesn't mean that's the first decade it existed. It's just the first time we had a name for it. And that's certainly the case with punk. Uh, you know, The Clash and Sex Pistols and so many other bands that started in the 70s that were that influential. But the, you know, and yes, it would become actually much more commercially successful in the 90s and beyond, you know, when it would morph into like punk pop and emo, certain kinds of emo and stuff like that. And of course, Green Day. And I'll get to them later. And it was even way you know more popular in in the '90s with uh, the masses, you know. But the '80s to me is again '70s punk is raw and it has certain elements to it that make punk punk. But all of what punk is to me was done by the 1980s. You'd have offshoots and changes, like I said, punk pop and emo and whatever. But though the language of punk that we now use to create new words and sentences from, let's say really was codified by the 1980s. Uh, there was the traditional punk. There was post-punk, some of which was electronic or had electronic elements or more pop and dance elements. It got more pointedly political. It also got less political. It's It basically said you don't need to be one specific thing to be punk. Part of punk is you do whatever you want, however you want. Uh, it got more personal in a lot of ways. You had that West Coast punk and surf punk, uh, bands like Agent Orange. You had the, you know, bands who were doing a punk that no one had ever heard before, like Husker Du. You had Minor Threat and Bad Brains, you know, Fishbone, Crossing Over, Race Lines. You had Meat Puppets. You had Black Flag. You know, it went from being an almost ironic response to an art like progressive rock and bombastic uh, older rock is what they would call it, uh, you know, to its own thing, separated from any reactiveness. It did what it did because it just wanted to be what it was. The dead milkman, the dead Kennedys, Nixon's head. You had punk that was humorous like some of those bands. You you know, you had punk that that's really ran the spectrum of politics even. There were some that were, to me, very offensive even. But then, you know, it began to influence other types of music. You had the you had the go-go's. It's when Green Day started. Metal went uh, you know, faster in the 1980s than it had been in the 1970s, which I think was an influence of punk. Grunge, some types of grunge were influenced by punk. Uh, those are, I mean, that that's to me why the 80s was the, you know, the peak of punk. And there are probably punk type things that I actually enjoyed more after that decade. But that's also when, even though I did listen to some of punk in the 70s. I was a little too young to appreciate the 80s is when it really hit me hard. Now you have, uh, by the way, four, I think, genres in this. Is it four? Uh, yes. Metal is the next one. And this, I think, is maybe the in a very hard category or maybe just a hard category because how can you take away from Black Sabbath in the 70s and, you know, uh, Judas Priest and all the bands that started then 
And how can you take away from the even harder and just incredibly, you know, blow your face off metal that would come about in the 90s and beyond? But to me, all the elements of what we think of as metal uh, were established by the 1980s. Again, uh, you had hard metal, you had pop metal, the hair metal, you know, but you had also dark metal, you had speed metal and thrash. And it achieved the hardness that the 70s only really hinted at. You had some things there that were dark and hard, but just the, the, the force of metal wasn't fully established to me until the 1980s. And yeah, it would probably get harder and it would expand into all different kinds of music. You're hearing metal influence again, like I said, in other forms of music. You had metal guitars in like a Michael Jackson song and popular music uh, breaks. You have metal in certainly in hip hop and, and rap with a lot of what Run DMC did and even some of what Beastie Boys did and all of that. So yeah, well, I'm going to say metal 1980s. This is the other one that to me is a very hard. Now it might be partly because I don't know as much about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is film music, score music, not soundtracks. I, no one should ever pick a decade for the best soundtracks because every decade, first of all, most soundtracks are just compilations of songs that were popular somewhere else with maybe a song or two that became popular because of that movie. But also it's, that's not, it's, yeah, it's, I don't, it's not its own genre really. Uh, but film music is, you know, it's orchestral music in many ways. And uh, a lot of it stems from that whole classical, uh, you know, field and I'm going to name just some people who were active in the 1980s John Williams, Hans Zimmer uh, John Barry, Danny Elfman started his career then as far as after he left Oingo Boingo Trent uh, no, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did not uh, but Trent Reznor started his career then uh, he wouldn't get into film music till much later uh, Ennio Marconi, Elmer Bernstein uh, or is it Bernstein, James Horner Bernard Herrmann, a shout out to Angelo Badalamente, who did like Twin Peaks and all, but he did a lot in the 80s as well. This is the decade when it was established, not just hinted at, not just surprising, but it was it was established beyond any measure before that a film's score could be popular on its own. Yeah, you had Star Wars, you know. You had big theme songs like, uh, the Great Escape and the Dirty Dozen and things, you know, from the 1960s even. You you had people like Henry Mancini, you know, killing it on scores and even, you know, classical stars like Aaron Copeland and all prior to that who did memorable music. There's no question about it. But to me, the 80s said, if you're going to make a score, make it memorable, period. And it can be a it can be acoustic instruments, orchestral instruments. It can be electronic instruments. It can be spare. It can be giant and big. Uh, it, it, but it had to be hummable instrumentals. Think of Chariots of Fire. That's all electronic, early 80s. It's when John Williams was cemented as an icon to me. Yeah, he started sooner than that and had huge hits, as we know, sooner than that, Star Wars and all. But it's really the 80s was when, if you're going to go to somebody for a certain type of movie, go to John Williams. That's when there was no looking back there, you know. And so many of those people being active at the same time, people who had started decades before, people who would gain greater success in decades subsequent to the 80s, 
we haven't looked back. We we have had lulls here and there, but most of us know that there are movies that just have memorable soundtracks every year, even you could say. And to me, that's that really became the thing that was meant to be achieved in the 1980s, you know, from then on. Uh, and then the last one for the 80s here. And I honestly don't consider this controversial. Oh, I do. Well, no, I don't consider this hard. You can make it as controversial as you want. And that is uh, pop music. Uh, I believe it was Kelefasana who said that pop music as its own thing wasn't really established as a separate thing until the 1980s. There was popular music. There was music that had elements of pop, but, but, but pop being its own achievement, its own goal. When you, especially the British invasion bands like uh, Culture Club and so many of those, uh, even the Eurythmics, even even some of the more techno bands like New Order, there was an idea that pop was now separate from other genres. And that first time that happened was in the 1980s. And our idea of what a pop song could be, to me, again, all the elements that we have today were established by this decade. You had rock pop and power pop. You had electro pop. You had dance pop. All of this existed then. And much of it did not exist before the 70s. And most, if not all, of what we think of as pop you even had pop hip hop and all of that was established by the 1980s. And again, just too many names, you know, too many artists. Uh, there are ways in which the 80s were my favorite pop era, but I don't know if that is definitive. But I will say I'm going to stand by that, that uh, great pop music in every decade, but the 80s was when it was at the peak for those reasons. Uh, 1990s. Okay. You know, this will be controversial, but I'm going to say it, hip-hop. Because it was, again, a real pivot decade. Hip-hop had been around in one form or another since the 70s, if not earlier. And the 80s is one of one of my favorite decades for that uh, genre. But I will say that the 90s still probably holds as my favorite, primarily because of the production value of it. It was able to be both hard and pop both, uh, you know, freaky and trying new things and experimental, but, or, or, but both like creating memorable stuff and singles and things like that. Everybody was doing it. It was influencing all other kinds of music in so many ways. It would, as we know, influence rock to the point where you had new metal and, you know, and all of that and, and, you know, morph into Linkin Park and bands like that. You, all of that, and to me, everything that has happened since, I keep saying this, was established by the 1990s. You had electro hip-hop, which existed before then, certainly, with Planet Rock and, and bands like that. I mean, uh, songs like that. Uh, you had, uh, like, original concept or whatever. And then you had uh, acoustic-based or soul-based, sample-based hip-hop without samples, political hip-hop, non-political hip-hop, hip-hop about uh, sex and relationships, hip-hop about personal issues, things that they didn't, it went into to some degree in the 80s, but it fully took hold to me in the 90s. And even though hip-hop would come to dominate, and I think still dominate, the charts and the the minds and hearts of many people in the 2000s and 2010s and, and, and up until today, it, to me, 
this was the decade when that became possible, when all things that would become hip hop were, uh, had already existed or were born, you know, and let me know if you completely disagree. Uh, and again, too many artists to name, uh, ambient. So there's only three here in the nineties. I'm sorry, four. Gosh, I got to work on those bolds. Ambient music's been around again forever. But I'm talking, uh, and you know, Brian Eno was a pioneer of a lot of that, et cetera, et cetera, and minimalist music, and that's that's fine. Ambient music, even let's say new age music and things that existed before then, it became a part of the wider culture in many ways because of raves and things when there's a point at, uh, in the evening or actually early morning when a DJ would switch over to more mellow music to kind of help come, people come down and, uh, and usher them out, basically. And that's where kind of ambient techno came in. So you had a lot of ambient electronic music, but you even had uh, like chamber pop and ambient soft music like Bell and Sebastian. You had shoegaze, which even though has a hard edge to it, has that kind of ambient quality, that wash of sound. Uh, trip hop. Very, very ambient that that took hold in the 1990s. It also influenced so many other genres and would continue to, and again, to this day, that kind of easy listening thought. A lot of what we have today as softer music is ambient music or music that is influenced by ambient music. You have bands in the 90s like Orbital, Air, Boards of Canada, Aphex Twin. It even influenced movie music and television music like the Angelo Badalamente stuff. Um it was a ma- like I said, a major influence on on techno. It could be so many different things. It could be bright. It could be a little harder and dancier. It could be more trippy and more flowing. Uh, Sigur Rós started in the 1990s, and they are it, it's so many things. But ambient is definitely one of them. You had the post rock movement, which started in the 1990s. Uh, certainly had precursors, but bands like the Sea and Cake where they were saying, we're, we're not rock anymore, we're post-rock, you know. And part of that was, a big part of that was the ambient quality. The next one, I mean, of, of that kind of music. Which brings me to uh, the next genre, and I'm dumping a lot in here, except for one, and I'll get to that in the next decade. And that is techno, house, trance, dubstep, UK garage, drum and bass, all of the electronic bass dance music with, uh, with uh, an, one or two exceptions. To me, the 90s was the peak of that. You can't take away from Depeche Mode and New Order and just the absolute plethora of pop hits in the 1980s where electronic music, to me, if I was saying that was a separate genre, which I'm not, the 80s was, again, the peak for, for that because the everything was saturated with electronics to the point where you couldn't even really have a rock band without electronics in it, which would change very much in the 1990s. It would pretty much switch for several years. You technically weren't allowed to have a keyboard in a rock band for part of the 1990s. You weren't considered true rock. Uh, Fun times. But this is when, the 90s is when it broadened from the 1980s origins, all this electronic dance music. It splintered in so many good ways. It was dominant in clubs and raves and, and all of that. It was the first time that this this type of electronic music where techno and house really had origins more in the early eighties and different parts of the country and the world took hold, not just in underground and in clubs, but went into the mainstream. There were huge hits and, you know, in the 1990s that were 
were techno songs or house songs or based on that form of music. It wasn't quite as uh, structured and codified as it would be in years to come. So again, this is another straddle decade. You had artists who were bringing new things into the language. And, and to me, even though new sounds have always been introduced and always hopefully will be, as far as what the elements of what we think of as electronic dance music were all established by some point in the 1990s. You have Fatboy Slim and Moby, you know, and, and others I can't even, again, it's just too many to name. And while, you know, dance music made with electronic instruments, and I'm saying it that way for a specific reason, which I'll get to in a couple, um, it existed before then, would become way more commercially successful in uh, years after, this is the decade to me when it just had that kind of breadth of creativity and peak and all the three C's that, you know, again, uh, charm, commerce, and creativity, which brings me to related, uh, Euro pop. I wish I knew more about this, but I know enough to know that, uh, this was a decade when we were kind of saturated with Euro pop, Ace of Base, Spice Girls, even some of the music that, Backstreet Boys and New Kids in the Block that were influenced by Europop. Robin started uh, that song, Barbie Girl. Right Said Fred. These are all songs that have that kind of, I believe I've seen Europop defined as like a lighter version of, you know, dance or techno music, uh, pop music with electronics involved. Uh, and yes, it would, it, it, it really, to me, influenced music well beyond this decade and we wouldn't have a lot of the music we have today without Europop and that to me is because of the things that were established by the 1990s and I, and it's also to me when it was the kind of most frivolous and fun uh, which is a pro and a con I'm not even saying that was honestly my favorite then but that's just kind of what I've come to we are sort of almost done you're there with me wonderful we're in the 2000s and I actually have, uh, what do I have here? Well, I have three. So pretty good decade. The 2000s, just morphing right into it. What's the type of dance, electronic music or electronic dance music that I didn't mention? Go to the initials, EDM. Was its own thing and really became its own thing, especially in the 2010s. But a lot of what we think of as that kind of hard driving you know, drop out, drop back in type stuff. Uh, the certain types of mixing, certain types of sounds were all really established by the 2000s. And yet the 2000s, for several reasons, was when electronic music kind of took a dip in popularity. It's when hip hop was coming up. It's when indie rock was having this huge resurgence and, and so many other things. Uh, the the 2010s would see a giant, resurgence in EDM and the popularity of that on every level. But to me, again, this was a pivot year. This was when it was coming out of those types of other types of dance music that I talked about, electronic music in the 1990s and pre prior to that, and hadn't yet become, well, you need to do this and you need to do it this way that that would be, you know, in, in subsequent years or just constantly shooting for the pop charts Again, every artist wants to be successful, but this was a decade in which there was a lot of creative exploration of EDM. You had Skrillex and Basement Jacks, uh, Tycho, T-Y-C-H-O, 
someone I need to explore more. DJ Shadow, Daft Punk, Dead Mouse, the guy with the five at the end of his name, Tiesto, Swedish House Mafia, Calvin Harris, Mark Ronson. It was really when it was established that it's possible for a DJ to be a superstar. There were, there were superstar DJs before then and bigger ones after. But this is when it was established, oh, you can be a DJ and be a superstar, you know. And it was influencing pop music majorly like Rihanna and Black Eyed Peas. Uh, it, you know, it would set up the success of stars, uh, post that like David Guetta and Avicii, you know, and even, even though Mark Ronson started then he'd have even greater successes after that. Uh, I, yeah, I mentioned Calvin Harris who would continue to have a lot of successes, but yeah, I will also say that as far as this type of music, that's probably my favorite decade for it. Although there's a ton of stuff in the 2010s that I've absolutely loved. Uh, but that's my take on this one. Second one for this decade, indie, alt-rock. With a huge check to the 1990s and 1980s, because a lot of what happened in the, two, in the 2000s wouldn't have existed. But to me, so many things came together in the decade of the 2000s, and I'm just going to do this. Sit with me. You ready? The Strokes, The White Stripes, The Vines, The Hives, Hot Hot Heat, Block Party, France Ferdinand, Arcade Fire, Arctic Monkeys, The Yeah, Yeah, Yes, Interpol, Death Cab for Cutie, Postal Service, The Killers, The Wombats, though they became better even in the decade after, Vampire Weekend, TV on the Radio, The Insanity in Brooklyn, and all those bands in Brooklyn, The National, Ra Ra Riot, Foles, Jet, Spoon, and you will know us by the Trail of Dead, Godspeed, You Black Emperor, Mars Volta, Apples, and Stereo. Not every one of those bands started in, in the 2000s. Some started before then. Some would have greater success after the 2000s. But that all of these existed and many, 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 many more in the 2000s. Charts were saturated with music like this. It was an explosion that to me was unexpected at the time. And it was another renaissance for me rock-wise the way the early 90s were. Uh, and really the last time that rock dominated the charts in any significant way was the 2000s too, you know, and it was mostly indie alt variety, including this, the last of the 2000s, uh, power pop and emo or the late, latter day emo. You had bands like Fountains of Wayne, Jimmy World, American Hi-Fi, Fallout, Boy Blink, 182, My Chemical Romance, Paramore, Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, AFI, Bright Eyes, Hawthorne Heights, Motion City Soundtrack, Coheed and Cambria, Panic at the Disco, 30 Seconds of Mars, Dashboard Confessional, Green Day, Weezer, both of those last two, of course, they're perennials, you know, and existed before then and had success before then, but really that that kind of Power pop being one of my absolute favorite genres and what I do much of on my uh, original music. And then that, like I said, that more pop-leaning punk and emo, uh, latter-day emo, was just absolutely all everywhere in that decade. With a shout to this decade and slightly the end of the 20 teens, where you now have a resurgence, especially among women and non-binary people, LGBTQ people, kind of taking hold of a genre that was dominated by men and boys, which I find exciting. You know, I, I say be a badoobie a lot and whatever, but I, I will say it again. Uh, pop and indie artists of the 2000s were getting influenced from this kind of music, like Avril Lavigne and Liz Fair, uh, one of her, I think, best albums, which a lot of other uh, critics will say, ah, it wasn't Liz Fair, screw that. It was an awesome album. It was her eponymous album in the 2000s. Um, it's not as broad 
as what happened in the 1990s or as kind of expansive like Sunny Day Real Estate and at the drive-in. But there's still a lot of absolute quality here for this kind of music. 2010s, last full decade we'll go over, although they're not the last one, period. And there's a couple here, and one is uh, Electropop, which, as we know, has been around since at least the 80s, and if not earlier than that, no, definitely earlier, but, but the 80s is when it became a thing. But right now, almost everything pop, whether it's mainstream or indie, in the 2010s was Electro. Very little of what was popular or successful was not electro. Even things that were technically not considered electro had electro elements in them. And you could have ambient. You could have danceable electro, electro rock. So much of hip-hop is, is electro in that certain way, in that kind of you know blinky-bloopy way. Uh, Lana Del Rey and Lord and Grimes and, and Gautier. It, yes, I think it's even bigger now. But the 2010s is when it really exploded and when it really took over from pretty much every other kind of pop music. Even artists like Sam Smith and Ed Sheeran, you had Lady Gaga, Churches, Katy Perry, Rihanna, Beyonce, Robin, again, Britney Spears, The the Weeknd, just huge successes in the, in the 2010s. And hyper pop kind of became a thing in the 2010s, which is just the, you know, fastest, freakiest electro pop, right? And even some older stars would revisit or try out electro pop in the 2010s and have some success with that. Uh, Latinx, 2010s. Shout out, though, to two other decades, the 1980s, when you had, you know, bands like, uh, well, Gloria Stefan, Miami Sound Machine, and so many others doing popular, very, very successful and popular Latin music uh, and uh, Latin-influenced music done by other artists. And now, a big shout out to now because it's not like it's it's going to get any less popular. It's even more popular now. But to me, the 2010s is when it was like, okay, here's what happened before. Here's what we want to get to. We're going to do it all and just blow it up. Reggaeton became a huge thing. You had Shakira, Rosalia, Bad Bunny started then, Prince Royce. Uh, you had so much Latinx hip hop. Jay Balvin, Pitbull, which is my niece's favorite artist. I don't, I don't get it, but I, uh, I think that's kind of cool. It's... And like I said, probably it's going to get even bigger. But this is when all that promise came to fruition, when all those previous Latin artists who were niche artists, oh, now it's mainstream popular. Here in the States, again. So you're somewhere else in the world, you're like, what are you talking about? It's been popular forever. Uh, even older stars like Enrique Iglesias and Mark Anthony had hits in the 2010s. Which brings me to the last set of music here. For the 2020s, which is not very old, so it's hard to be, uh, you know, definitive here and declaim the way I have been. But I'm going to throw this out for a very specific reason. And that is music like K-pop, J-pop, African pop, pop music from other countries, aside from the Latinx, which, I mean, is part part of this too, but I've already talked about that, uh, is growing and will continue to grow. And my prediction is the 2030s will be the biggest decade in America for this type of music. But it's because of the artists we're seeing like, you know, BTS and Blackpink and and artists like that. And God, forget it. uh, uh, Mvula, Laura Mvula, I think, uh, who are doing music that is already popular in their countries, but is now popular here 
and more people are seeking it out. Yeah, because of the internet. Yeah, because more diversity and all of that. And all of that is amazing. It's just going to continue to grow. And so many other artists who do other kinds of music who are from this country, uh, who don't have the same background and everything, are being influenced by all of this music, which I have deliberately not called world music because that is very diminishing. World music to me means any music that's not from America, which then somehow lumps in dozens of other countries into one form, and it's ridiculous. Uh, that's that's my decade slam, people. I've got one more thing to give you, which as always, I end with a talk about one of my songs. As you know, right here next to me, and for those of you who can't see, go get a, a phone that has a video. Uh, it wasn't me. Cover songs and movie music and quirky, weird uh, originals and and unreleased music that just came out recently. There's a song on there that, well, this is going to be fun because this is a decade slam, that was originally done by a man born in the 1940s who started performing in the 1950s, became an icon in the 1960s and 70s, this, this song that I covered, he released in the 1980s, and I did it in a style of a band from the 1990s, originally released it in the 2000s for a movie that came out in the 2010s, and then re-released it in the 2020s. So other than the 1930s, this, this single references all the decades I mentioned, almost, and that is the song Center Field by John Fogarty. I remember this song when I was a kid. Didn't fully love it. I'm a baseball fan, but it just wasn't my kind of music. I was asked to do this for a film. I did it, but I wanted to do it in a way that I knew I would enjoy. So I took the band Cake, and I said, I can make this song sound like a Cake song. So imagine a John Fogarty song, particularly Center Field, sounding like a, a Cake song. And you're going to have to, if you don't know any of those artists, look them up, find it out. Look up the original center field. Look up one of the most popular cake songs, whichever one you want. Uh, and compare it to what I've done here. Uh, and I just had a ton of fun with it. And shout out to my then production partner, Daniel Cousins, for helping me put it together. That's my story here. Which decades are your favorites for these genres? Do you prefer the jazz of the 40s or 60s or whatever? Do you prefer rock from the 70s? I know so many people do. And I, again, not saying these are my preferences, but do you think that was the best decade for those genres? Are there other decades you think were even better than what I mentioned? I want to hear whether you agree or disagree, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you, and I will see you with a regularly length episode next week. Put me in coach, I'm ready to play. Put me in coach, I'm ready to play.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 